1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Bear market bounce or a rally to rely on? It really is the most important question for your money right now. We debate that answer with the Investment Committee. And joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, John and the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's take a look at the markets. 12 noon in the east. Dow is down. A lot of that has to do with Boeing. You see the S&P is higher, as is the NASDAQ. And there is the yield on the 10-year note, 223. So rates are moving higher today. Oil's up, as Carl said. A bunch of Fed speakers today, including the chair himself, the Atlanta Fed president. Already speaking today, six rate hikes is what he sees. That, of course, is in the market. That's what the market expects, Shannon. So answer the big question. Is this a reliable rally or simply a bear market bounce?
2: Well, I don't know that we can rely on it just yet. I do think that over the next couple of weeks, Scott, we are going to see some rotation back into equities and particularly into U.S. equities. Just think about where we started the year. Um, If you had a traditional 70-30 or 60-40 portfolio, you're definitely off that mark for your equity weightings now. Many people came into this year bullish about international and emerging market equities. And although they had a nice rally last week and recovered some ground, there is a little bit of skittishness in terms of what the potential spillover from the situation in Ukraine could be on Europe in particular. Uh, Think about supply chain constraints. And so I think over the next two weeks, I do think we start to see um, a little bit of excitement about U.S. stocks again that could go down into small cap stocks as well that might not just be limited to large caps. But I think in terms of sustainability, I think we want to make sure that there is isn't additional spillover from a geopolitical perspective. I think five rate hikes sounds a lot better to the market than seven rate hikes. But I also think that you're seeing In the curve, in the bond market, you're seeing some concerns about recession. You're seeing the flattening of the curve. You're seeing concerns about growth. If we're back to say 3% growth from a GDP perspective by the end of the year, that's actually not that bad compared to where we were pre-pandemic. And I think people are getting overly concerned about growth in the market. But I think this next two weeks probably looks a little bit better. We might see some skittishness as it relates to the geopolitical situation as we go into the summer. Most importantly, CPI, PPI. We saw PPI get a little bit better last week. I think that's what we need to see is continued improvement, that the trend in inflation is coming down. Energy prices fall below $100 a barrel on WTI. Then I think you get that inflection point, Scott, for the markets in the second half of the year.
1: Doc, there's there's the interest rate complex today. 202 on the two year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm only 21 bips behind the 10 year at this point. What are the options yeah. traders betting on, Doc? What are you seeing in terms of being able to answer the question of whether the rally is reliable or, or if it's simply a, a bear market bounce that feels great but is soon to evaporate?
3: Well, i um Friday, Scott, you and I talked about the LQD. That's uh, uh, I think we talked about it. That was the high yield, the corporate high yields. And they were buying downside puts in there at the 118 strike with that at about 121 and a half. We've dropped uh, back down into the 120 level uh, for that LQD. And so what is that telling us? That's telling us that people are anticipating higher rates for everybody, uh, corporates as well as Joes and Janes. Uh, obviously, mortgage rates had a pretty big jump last week, and maybe that's an understatement, pretty big jump. Um, and that may start to uh, erode some of the uh, uh, gains that we've seen in housing as they become less affordable to those that are seeking an eighty-twenty traditional kind of mortgage, 20 uh, percent down. And, and I think overall, though, Scott, uh, Shannon's right. Uh, the, the market is um, sanguine. Uh, The market is feeling, you know, just sort of even handed right now. Um, An awful lot of our equities, I'd point to, that are owned by overseas players. Uh, The United States is lucky that we have so many investors from overseas, both institutional and public. I mean, I believe that the last count I saw, which unfortunately was 2019 to 2020, Scott, showed that almost 40 percent of our equities are owned by overseas entities. The reason that's good is that um, these people are lo- uh, not looking to put that money back into Europe and certainly not looking for some of the war torn areas of the world to invest in. They're instead hunkering down in our equities. And I think that continues to sort of be that floor, if you will. It's not the same as the Fed put, but I don't think those folks that are in there are in there for anything but the long term at this point. I think. Europe has proved to be sort of a uh, what we've said all along. You don't have the liquidity when you want it or need it in Europe, um, but you do have it almost 24-7 in the United States.
1: All right. So Joe Terranova, Tom Lee today says bad news is priced in. Oppenheimer's Ari Wald says swinging away from pessimism. He sees near term upside 4550 to 4600 on the S&P. I mean, oh, what a difference a week makes. The kind of conversation that we had a week ago today was like, how low are we going? And now we're asking questions as to whether you can rely on this big move that we've had in the market. Lori Calvesina at RBC says, well, stocks aren't exactly cheap quite yet. However, the contraction in the S&P and the forward P.E. has been significant.
4: Can you believe it? So I think. Where we are right now, if you could give me a couple of closes above 44.71-ish, which is the 200-day moving average, that's going to get you, from a technical perspective, probably another 75 handles higher in the S&P. I think that's the immediate direction. The question then becomes, what are the stocks that I want to put inside my vehicle that's going to carry me towards that level in the S&P? And I think that's where, Scott, you go back to fundamentals. Ask yourself the question have the fundamentals, has the risk profile for a lot of the hyper-growth, non-profitable, technology and consumer discretionary names improved just because the market has bounced? Without question, the answer to that is no. So there, there, you have your bear market bounce. What you want to be doing is focusing on companies where the fundamentals, you had a technical deterioration, but the fundamentals weren't that bad. Were the fundamentals that bad for energy and agriculture and some of the mega cap equities or in financials, some of the insurance companies or the asset managers or in healthcare, some of the medical devices? No, they were not. And those are the places that I think at this stage of a technical bounce, you ought to be focused on. There's just too much risk to incur trying to stay with a lot of these stocks that have bounced and really have extreme valuations. Because guess what? Rates are going to keep moving higher, inflation's not going away.
1: Now, Weiss, you know, Krinsky had been asking the question, you know, when you or we we were trying to figure out the answer to the question of whether this is legit, whether it's a, just a bear market bounce. And he had been pointing out almost every day last week that you really never had that big flush that he was looking for that you've experienced in in prior correction cycles to be able to really definitively as much as you can ever do that declare that the bottom is in so where does that leave us as we we enter a new week steve after the kind of comeback we had from monday to friday of a week ago
5: look i, I still think uh, a tone of caution is war- warranted here it, it, it's kind of arrogant as I see, it, for all these bulls to come out and say, oh, all the negatives are known, all the negatives are known. It's like if you're, if you're bearish or if you're cautious, you don't have the capacity to think of what the positives are. You know, Eugene Fama, who has the efficient market hypothesis, which I'm not sure I agree with, says everything's known all the time in the market. So then the question is, and this I agree with, what are the issues going forward? And those are the issues that are keeping me from putting more money into the market. And particularly China, if you read over the weekend, they're still dead set on going after Taiwan. I don't know if it'll be next week, next month or two months, but that's not Russia. That is a huge global economy that impacts the U.S. I don't believe you're getting paid for that black swan event by investing in the market. Well, so what Look, are you going to do you going to sit on your you going to sit
1: on your hands you going to sit on the sidelines until you get more clarity on that issue? What if it doesn't come?
5: Well, if it doesn't come, then, first of all, it's going to be an overhang. I'm not sure it doesn't come. But if you want to ring a bell, like Krinsky wants a bell to be rung, essentially, and say, "Okay, we've had the big flush, now all is safe, the market doesn't ring bells. I'd love for it to. But if stocks continue to get cheap, like Volkswagen, add to it at four to five times earnings. I don't care what happens. That is a great buy. FedEx, 10 times, that's a great buy. So there are places to put money to work. But the way I look at it, that's not the only negative. The other negative is stocks go up in a rising rate environment. We've seen that. Yeah. History shows that can happen. But they don't go up where mm. earnings are coming down. And in my belief, with what we're seeing with inflation and the input costs, that earnings are going to be coming down because margins are going to be getting hit. So that's why I'm cautious. Okay, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do this.
1: Let's do this. Let's leave it on that note, um, because it's a principal point that our halftime headliner today, Brian Belsky of BMO, he's the chief investment strategist there, is making to counter that view. Brian, um, you know, he says, Steve does, earnings are coming down, earnings are coming down. That's one of the principal reasons to be negative on the market. Earnings come down. The multiple needs to come down further. And I looked at your notes today and you make the argument that it's exactly the opposite.
6: Uh, good afternoon. Steve also made the uh, the argument that it's arrogant to be bullish. I think, you, I think you have to have faith to be bullish. It's arrogant to be constantly bearish and constantly fear-filled and constantly rhetoric-filled and constantly macro-driven. The stock market is a market of stocks. You can't name two or three stocks because earnings are going down there and apply it, apply it to the 500 stocks in the S P 500. In fact, if you actually do the work and do the math over the first almost 90 days of 2022, Earnings projections for the S&P 500 on a bottoms-up basis, the number is increasing. Nobody believes it because nobody's done the work, Scott. They're, they're applying mean, it to You're the a only couple one who's done the work? You're the only, I'm the only one, one who's that's done publishing the work? on it. I'm the only one that's published on it, Scott, because people don't want to be controversial and, and dig into the numbers. You've got analysts and strategists lowering their, their forecasts. And I just think it's too early. And we will adjust our forecast if we see something fundamentally year. And after for the it already turns lower? No, Scott. No, you don't you don't downgrade your forecast after the market goes down. You downgrade your forecast after a rally. That's number one. Number two, something that no one's talking about. Is that Paul came out last week and said, hey, excluding the war, which I know is a is a reality. Excluding the war, the Fed's forecast and the Fed belief was that inflation was going to peak sometime in the late first quarter. No one's talking about that. On a month-over-month basis, the numbers are already starting to see that, even with this spike in oil. And, oh, by the way... Oil is, is, is all over the place. It actually has more of a downward bend to it, Scott. So I just think that there's people making these macro arguments without actually doing the work. And that's why you have to be an investor in this. And that's why you, miss, you will miss out on weeks like last week if you are fear-driven and rhetoric-driven and not doing the work.
1: Let me ask you this. Your S&P target's 5,300. Your earnings are 245. That gives me a 21 half times P.E. on the market. You don't think that's a little bit aggressive in the kind of environment we're in?
6: I don't, because here's why. You're going to pay for stability. Uh, For the 75th consecutive year, it feels like, coming into 2022, everybody and their mother, brother, sister, cousin, uncle was bullish on emerging markets in Europe again. And I think that money's coming back and going to pay for stability in real growth here in North America there's an old adage when growth is scarce growth outperforms and I think there's gonna be scarce growth in emerging markets and obviously scarce growth in Europe and I think the money's coming back to North America both Canada and the United States
1: okay Weiss wants to get in on this conversation weiss what do you got for Belski
5: well first of all he was listening to a different Steve because I said none of what he said I said I didn't say to be You're arrogant if you're bullish. I said you're arrogant if you don't think that somebody else can see the other side. And publishing a document has never determined whether you're a great investor or not. So I do do the work. I talk to CEOs all day long, every single day, and they are concerned about inputs. We've heard it from many CEOs. So the fact you're coming off a good quarter with good guidance from companies doesn't mean that extends as inflation inputs stay higher and that's what they're doing. That's number one. Number two, it'd be very difficult for the market P.E. to expand as Brian's looking at forget about the ridiculous target of 5300 or whatever it is this year for the market for P.E. multiples to expand in a rising rate environment in a hyperinflation environment that we see now. The Fed has one goal. That goal is to slow down the economy. That is directly at odds with margins picking up. So I just don't see it happening. And I'm not always negative. I'm not always pessimistic. I'm realistic, and I focus on risk management, which is critical to staying alive in this business for over 30 okay, years. Okay,
4: Belsky.
6: My retort is I've been in the business 32 years. I run $7 billion, with a B, dollars. The majority of our portfolios are outperforming this year, Steve, so I put my money where my mouth is. And I actually do think it's ridiculous uh, to be this negative right now. And it's ridiculous to say that we're in a hyperinflation side. I think inflation is, is yesterday's story. It's not going to be tomorrow's story. And I think too many people, companies alike, are doing the supply chain inflation blame game. And they're going to continue to under-promise and over-deliver on their earnings, period.
1: I mean, 7.5% inflation or, w- or whatever it is, is not exactly light inflation i mean how else would you describe the the environment that we're in you've already made the case that you think inflation has either peaked or in the first quarter so what do we got two more weeks and then we're going to have inflation start going down
6: it's not hyperinflation scott though and we're going back to work we're in the transition to normalcy. well, relative to what
1: it was it is
6: i mean it's not inflation well, I, mean, of course I don't know we it's had, the highest in 40
1: years what is it then
6: well, it's not hyperinflation, it's not hyperinflation, and, and, and the structural issues can be unwound a lot faster, Scott, than when we had the oil embargo, uh, Nixon freezing freezing wages in the 1970s and paying off the Vietnam War in the 1970s. Again, uh, it, that's when we had the hyperinflation, or even in the 40s, post-World the world, world War II. So, again... These are these are once in a lifetime situations, especially given what we've gone through in in the pandemic. Unfortunately, we have this terrible situation in Europe, which again could go away in a day. So that's why you have to be you have to be invested, Scott, and stop trying to time the market and try to figure out when all of this is peaking.
1: John Nigerian has something for you, Doc.
3: Yeah, well, uh, I think this plays to both Krinsky and uh, to what Brian Belsky are saying as far as could we have um, already seen the bottom Um, on the eighth Scott, we talked about that huge flush, uh, which occurred in the market when we traded down to whatever 414 in the spy um, and or the spike in volume, because it was one of the heaviest option volume days in weeks. Now, last Friday, we actually did see a, a peak that was just over that on the rally side and I believe some of that's probably short covering but as far as that you know that flush at the bottom on March 8th we saw one of the largest volume days of the year occur in options so to both Krinsky and Belsky's point um, that could be they don't ring a bell uh, at the bottom but they certainly did. Uh, Really flush an awful lot of accounts down at that level. Again, about 414 in the uh, in the spy. So I I think Brian, that kind of speaks to your point that if if that's the worst they could do, um, then perhaps we do see a pretty significant rally from here. I know um, uh, over at Guggenheim, Scott Miner just said he sees 20% from here uh, right at this level right now. He said that today. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some rallies, and then it'll just depend on news flow, Scott. Belsky? Scotty?
1: I mean, so you you make the case it's reliable then. (laughs) You think this is a real reliable rally that has legs and that can (laughs) last, and it's not a bear market bounce because you don't – Ascribe to the fact that we're even in a bear market, it sounds like.
6: I, I do. Uh, so I go back, and if my training from William O'Neill, I learned the business 32 years ago, who was a wonderful technician. Technicians want to see this beautiful washout. Life isn't like that. The stock market's not going to like that. You don't get exactly what you want. Um, if you take a look at what got hurt, the market has been very discriminating versus high multiple tech. They did its job. You had the NASDAQ down over 20%. You've got the majority, almost 80% of companies in the S&P down more than 10%, more than 50, 50% of the companies down more than 20%. So the market's done its job. And now it's all about buying the right stocks, being in high quality, owning both growth and value, and again, buying the best franchises and brands in the world, which are right here in the United States. But, but
1: owning both growth and value, can you really own growth in the rising rate environment that we expect? And by the way, as we're having this conversation, and I cite them all the time, Jonathan Krinsky, who I mentioned earlier, just literally publishes a note into my inbox as we as you guys were speaking. While we're fully open to some continued strength, he says, into the spring consistent with seasonality, we're not yet ready to definitively say the final lows have been made. Even if the bottom is in, there is likely to be a period of digestion which means patience will be paramount talks about rates moving higher commodities moving higher value outperforming growth so why can both perform well in the kind of environment that he just lays out and one that seems to be the base
4: case
6: well i think there's different types of growth scott right there's dividend growth there's growth at a reasonable price there's the consistent growth that's not the high octane growth stocks that really rallied in 2020 and 2021 I think that's, that's the case to be made. The other thing that bothers me about those comments from Grisky and I know he's a wonderful technician, is in one of my fears in the market, if you want to hear me say something negative, I think the market is completely uh, dismissing what's happening in, in Europe. And we could have a very bad event, and the market could get hit very hard in a day or two. Again, there's lots of volatility in this, Scott, and the only way to, to combat that, I think, is to be more of a high-growth investor in both value and growth, but, but really tilt toward those companies that have very strong operating performance, consistent earnings growth, and, oh, by the way, if they pay a dividend, even better.
1: Joe Terranova, you have something for Belsky? I,
4: I do, Brian, and I agree with you in terms of the way you're formulating the portfolio. But in years prior, when, when growth is scarce and when investors want to allocate towards growth, it's been concentration towards a lot of these astronomical uh, value, valuation Uh, tech companies and consumer discretionary companies where investors have been rewarded. Why would that be different as we move forward, if you're correct, where you're going to see uh, growth being so scarce?
6: I'm using it as a broader term, Joe, because I believe that growth is going to be scarce everywhere else in the world, but growth is going to be consistent and stable here in the United States. So I think the type of areas that investors are going to go to are going to be some of the big tech stocks, Joe, that aren't necessarily those high-octane Multiple names. I call them the consumer staples, kind of secular growers. But the U.S. stock market as an asset is going to be growing more consistently uh, than the rest of the world. And Same, too, again, for Canada with respect to the great financials up there and some great tech stocks. I think that the the North American market is going to be a home for equity assets for the next several years.
1: Brian, we're going to leave it there. That was a good-spirited conversation. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. All right. We'll see you again soon. That's Brian Belsky from BMO joining us now. How about this? I want you guys to take on, on Buffett, OK? Berkshire buying Allegheny for $11.5 billion. We've talked a few times over the last week of Berkshire shares hitting a new high um, repeatedly lately, closing about $500,000 a share. I'm wondering what you think, Shannon, this says, if, if anything, about kind of where we are and, and how much valuations have come down Not that Allegheny shares um, have had a, a massive pullback from their highs, but they were down. And this is a guy, Buffett, who's come out repeatedly and said, I can't find anything to buy because everything's too expensive. Now he pounces as valuations, at least in some respects, have come down. That stock was off of its highs, too. And now he finally sees something to buy. And it's also interesting to look at Berkshire's correlation to the Nasdaq, sort of when growth is doing well, Berkshire doesn't necessarily, or at least in the past, historically speaking, it hasn't done all that well. And vice versa, because he hasn't traditionally had a whole um, you know, disposition towards growth. Now, Apple obviously changes that part of the Berkshire equation. But nonetheless, Berkshire and Buffett pounce finally. What does it say about valuations in general?
2: Well, Joe made a great point earlier on uh, in the show, Scott, that there are clearly opportunities here, and I think we are going to start to see um, additional M and A activity. I think M and A and buybacks are two, you know, potential catalysts for the U.S. stock market this year that are really not being all that that widely discussed. I think that from a valuation perspective, you know, there are certainly more attractive valuations, particularly for public companies to want to get involved. We're really moving away from a market that has been completely dominated by private equity and VC investors over the last few years and moving into opportunities for Buffett, for example, to be able to pick up a company that fits very nicely within his portfolio. I do find it interesting the divergence, just given the Apple position between Berkshire Hathaway and the Nasdaq, for instance. But I think what we are going to see is we're going to see opportunities for companies to be able to do tuck-in acquisitions. And we're going to see less backlash because of the valuations that are being paid. So I, I still continue to think about this year being a great de- great year for M&A, both at the, lar- the large cap as well as for small caps, but also those buybacks, that starts to accrete that value. So as Jim says all the time, we may not have multiple expansion this year, but I do think that there's going to be some opportunities for that earnings line to grow in ways that we're not really considering against the backdrop that we're looking at.
1: See, I'm taking a look, Joe, for example, at Blackstone, Okay, Blackstone was at 150. Mm -hmm. It's at 123 today. I bring it up because you just bought it. And I want to know why you bought it now.
4: Absolutely. So first of all, uh, private equity, alternative asset managers, uh, it's it's certainly a, a component of the financial services industry that has experienced significant declines. I chose Blackstone relative to KKR or Evercore because they've been, first of all, more resilient in that environment. And second of all, they have an emphasis on commercial real estate, which again has been remarkably resilient. They're very tactical. They're going after apartment complexes. They're going after logistics and environment where the the, the value really is in in the storage of goods in this inflationary uh, monetary climate. And then they're looking at life servants, uh, life sciences, and healthcare type of REITs. So their focus on real estate is one of the reasons why I think they stand out above their peers. And as you mentioned, the ability to buy this stock down 6% on the year, for me, that offers a tremendous opportunity. I love the flexibility that they're going to be having to kind of generate a return in what's going to be a return environment that clearly, given the first three months, is signaling it's going to be challenged.
1: Okay. Um, Shannon made a new move, too, which I'm going to get to in a second. But then I look over and I see that Jim Labenthal has just tweeted at Steve Weiss. And it's not pretty.
4: And I don't know if Weiss has seen this
1: yet. And we had a big Friday night fight in overtime this past Friday. But I think we might have to get Jim (laughs) Labenthal on the phone uh, because he says Weiss is missing the boat on this rally. Let's see, guys, if we can if we can do that. Um, He's taking a good (laughs) shot at you, Weiss. Meantime, the Fed chair, First of all, I
5: don't know how he's I don't know how he's. On. I don't know how he says I'm missing it. Hang on. Well,
4: maybe we'll
1: find <laughs> out. We can <laughs> debate it. Fed Chair We're Powell good. is getting ready to speak We're literally good. in three minutes. We're going to get his highlights. Steve Leesman's going to join us with the latest. If there's Q&A, Leisman's going to monitor that, too, and let us know about it. But it's a big day for Fed speak, led by the head honcho. We're back in two minutes.
0: Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
1: All right, welcome back. I want to show you what stocks are doing. We're just before 1230 on the East Coast, and there's the Dow Jones Industrial Average led lower, largely, as I said at the outset. By Boeing shares, which are down significantly today, the S&P has been hanging on to positive territory for a while now, up nearly nine points. Rates are moving higher today. So the Nasdaq's been sort of up and down all around. And it's negative by a few points here. There is the 10 year note two five. You've had the 10 year yield on the rise. You've had the two year note on the rise. Oil has been up today and all of that's a considerable story. Fed speak right now. Jay Powell about to make
7: those remarks. Our Steve Leisman has the headline. Steve. Hey, Scott, uh, the Fed chair, Jay Powell, will say to the NABE conference that the Federal Reserve has an obvious need to move expeditiously. And the Fed can, if needed, move to more restricted levels, restrictive levels on rates if required to restore price stability. To that end, the Fed chair specifically says if it needs to move by more than 25 basis points at an upcoming meeting, quote, we will do so. If the Fed needs to hike rates above neutral to conclude, to con- Uh, control inflation, it will do so. He also sees a rising risk that the long-term inflation expectations can move higher if the Fed does not get inflation under control. He says the Ukraine war is likely to spill over to the U.S. economy, uh, restraining overseas growth as well as restricting supply chains. He says there's more COVID-related supply chain problems coming from China and the disruptions there related to COVID from China. Uh, He sees inflation coming down, though, on the good side here, 2% over the next three years. History, he says, does provide some grounds for optimism that there could be a soft landing. Scott?
1: Okay, you know what I get from this? So we talked about this the other day. Waller floats the balloon that 50 basis points are probably coming, and it may happen at more than one meeting if necessary. And now Jay Powell himself, the man with the mic, drops it on the market yet again. And it feels like they're conditioning us, Steve, for the fact that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, not if.
7: Um, I don't know that I'd quite go that far, Scott, but certainly they are preparing the ground for the possibility that it could happen. And if it does, you should not be surprised. I'm not sure reading this text and parsing those words, Scott, that I feel like they've decided they need to do it. But I, I would say you and I are just disagreeing by matter of degree. That is saying if they've decided to do it, I don't think they've decided to do it. I think they want the market and they want that flexibility to be able to do that eventually.
1: For, for, for sure. Of course, they haven't decided to do anything, um, yeah. although Powell let us know they were really going 25 before they decided to go 25. And that's sort of all I'm sort of channeling here is that sure. they are making it sure. painfully clear to the market that aggressive policy is necessary And they're at least floating the idea in ways that they really haven't before that if we drop 50 on you, don't be surprised.
7: I agree with that. What I think is interesting here, Scott, is that, remember, we had a whole press conference with the Fed chair last week. And the idea that he feels the need to come back and be even uh, more hawkish than he was last week is interesting to me. It's as if he sort of said, wait a second, maybe I didn't quite make myself clear last week. And so there's two important aspects to this. And I would say it's the fact that they could do 25s, they could do 50s, uh, and guys, but also he's emphasized here that the Fed could go above neutral. So those two ideas of if we need to go above neutral to slow the economy, in other words, higher than the two, two and a quarter they judge to be neutral, we will do so if needed. So there's a certain sense of resolve that he's trying to communicate here. We will do what we need to do to bring down inflation and don't be surprised if we do it.
1: I, I know you got to get firmly in the room, Steve. And if you'll just bear with me for, for one more question, you use the words more hawkish. Is, is that your read? versus what he was a week ago?
7: It is. It is. I think I think he's making two points very clearly here. The idea I mean look, Powell chooses his words very carefully. Uh, staff goes over it. They think about how this will be. They think about how I'm going to read it. They think about how you're going to read it. They think about how the market's going to read it. If he says specifically, if we need to go more than 25, and I quote here, we will do so, that's important. And when he says here, if we need to go above neutral, we will do so. He means for us to understand very clearly, they will do so.
1: I mean, I'm looking at the yield on the 10-year, go to 226. We don't show it on the screen, but if we could, let's throw, I said the 10-year, let's throw up the two-year Uh, which is now at 205. So you've got both, Steve, the two and the 10 uh, at the Mm -hmm. highs of the session. As that spread sort of tightens a little bit further, the curve flattens.
7: It's an interesting development, I mean, and, and you can look at all kinds of different spreads, the OIS spread, which is, takes out some of the term premium in there, um, and they're all flattening, and there's all this, I, I don't quite understand all of it, but I think there's this belief that there may not be a soft landing, and the other thing that Powell does in this uh, speech here is he goes out of his way to give it a little history and says it is not true that the Fed can't pull off a soft landing. Um, there have been examples of it, he says, three of them he points out, Uh, And he says it's entirely possible the Fed could pull it off. I I don't know how how firm he is. He says there's some grounds for optimism for a soft landing. But it's hard to see that right now, Scott, in the 210 spread flattening the way it's been. Steve,
1: you you go do what you got to do. Nice golf voice, by the way. Uh, If there is Q&A, you'll let us know (laughs) as well. That's uh, Steve Leisman down at the NABE conference down in Washington, D.C., where it's already proven, at least in these early moments, to be a bit market moving. You see stocks selling off and rates moving higher on those comments from the Fed chair. And you had the comments earlier today from Raphael Bostic as well, the president of the Atlanta Fed. So all of this is in the context of where we are at this very moment, 1235 or so, and you do have a little bit of a different market picture than where we began some 35 minutes ago. I told you that Jim Labenthal uh, had... I guess you call it taking a shot at Steve Weiss on Twitter. Really, this debate has been developing pretty substantially between the two of them as to where we are in the market. Jim Labenthal got the name back, Mr. All-In, because he's been much more bullish. He's on the phone. Are you there? I'm with you, Scotty. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And before I get to your tweet, I want your reaction to what Steve said, because you've been taking, I think it's fair to say, the under- On what the Fed is going to do, not to mention the fact that you've suggested, well, the market knows all of this already. I mean, I don't know if the market necessarily knows that the Fed could go 50 basis points and they may do it at more than one meeting. And what what Governor Waller suggested last week by throwing this on the table in the first place has now been backed up by the Fed chair himself. And I wonder if that changes your view on where the market can go as a result of all of that.
8: So it's going to change my view on what the Fed's going to do, but not where the market's going to do. And actually, because of what you said, I really, I mean, I'm focusing on you saying, hey, this is softening up the beachhead for what's to come. I think that's exactly right. So the market will adjust to it. It's off whatever it is, three-tenths on the S&P 500 right now. That's not throwing me. The market will adjust to that. What the market is also adjusting to are the positive economic forces right in front of us. People traveling, factories being built, jobs plentiful it's just really hard for me to see a recession, which is what is necessary for me to get negative at these
1: levels. Unless the the market is, you know, we're all trying to figure out exactly what the message of the bond market is, and maybe that is the message that it's trying to send, that it's worried about the fact of going into a recession because of aggressive Fed activity, the likes of which Jay Powell just laid out. I'm looking at my computer here because this is your tweet. You're missing the move, Steve. I told you for two weeks ago into the Fed meeting last week. I did all I could to get you to move into the light. You remain in the dark. Quoting Mike Wilson, who's been negative, obviously, is not a good look. So, Steve, I want your reaction to that. And I want it on the level, too. I don't want this to devolve uh, into something unseemly. But what's your reaction?
5: So so here's a few things. First of all, you know, the same people that are bullish now have been bullish for six months. market has gone nowhere in a year, except it's gone down. The average stock has gotten crushed. It's down between a crash, 50% the average Nasdaq stock, and between a bear market, 20% or a correction. So that's been the right way. Mike Wilson has actually been dead on because he's focused at the stocks underneath the indices rather than top line indexes. So if you're an index investor then frankly, most people should be, then you're doing okay, minimal losses, but if you pick stocks, you've lost a lot. So look, here's how I look at it. I'm just not getting paid for the risk. So for all the talk that you don't know the negatives, Uh, that you know all the negatives, you also know all the positives. So what can change? We saw one data point that changed today is a more aggressive Fed. This is the most hawkish I've seen any Fed that I can recall, except for in the 70s, where you had just ridiculous inflation, which, by the way, wasn't driven by supply chain issues, which have not really abated that much. So that's that's my concern, and frankly, I haven't missed the move in the market because it goes to more than stocks. It goes to what the beta is of those stocks and the individual stocks you own. So on some days last week, and it's only been a week, and we will see more rallies during this stage, but the market's not going to get to new highs, not going to get very far. So the, what I mean by the beta and the stocks that I own, it's about stock picking. Look at the news that came out from XBO. Look at FedEx, which I bought at two hundred that 's moved, so it depends on where you go i 'm not against putting money to mark to work in the market i 'm against putting wholesale money to work in the market because i don 't believe that we 've necessarily hit the lows and so if the market goes up another five or ten percent great. If China does invade Taiwan, it goes down thirty or thirty five percent i don 't think that 's a pie in the sky you know thing that's going to happen. I think it's very realistic that it happens. So again, I'd rather miss I a you. little of the upside which okay. I have not missed than miss than miss uh, you know the downside.
1: Jim, give me the last word then I'm going to move.
8: Yeah, the stock market. The S and P 500 up 16 percent over the last year, trailing 12 months. So Steve said it's down. That's just not right. As far as Mike Wilson, even at the lows of last month, when the market was down 13 percent, peak to trough, the S and P 500 was still up 13 percent over the prior year. A prior year in which Mike Wilson had been calling for a bear market the whole time. If you're following Mike Wilson, you're not making money. And I've tried to work on Steve over the last three weeks, but I, I just you know what he, he's so convinced. Steve's right, but he's not making money. I don't I understand, know what to do I mean, with
4: him. look, he, he, Steve's
1: not following Mike Wilson. That's a little intellectually dishonest, right? Mike Wilson, to your point, has made the calls yeah. that, that, that he's made, but Steve Weiss is not following Mike Wilson. He's simply citing him, and maybe he agrees with him now, Jim.
8: Um, Okay, you you see a distinction where I don't. But I think the overall point here is that the tone of the market has changed, and it's clearly focused on the positives right now. The fact that it's brushing off right now with the Fed, uh, what Powell just announced, is an indication. You have to respect the market. How many times have people said that to me? The market is changing its attitude right now.
1: All right. Mike Wilson's with us tomorrow, by the way.
8: Can can
5: we just put it in perspective? Just one thing. Just one thing, Scott, just put it in perspective. Go ahead. Jim will only go generally to a max of 10 percent cash. Okay, so now he's fully invested. Okay, that's not a big delta. I don't have to be anywhere near the market. So my mindset and Jim's been in business for a long time. His mindset over that period of time is 10 percent cash. That's the biggest risk level I can take. I'm not like that, number one. And when I refer to last year, Jim's right over a year ago. But if you look from mid-year last year, the market's really done nothing. So you go to June and July, the market's down.
1: We're making that the last word. Uh, Round two's over. Guys, thanks, Jim. Thank you. We'll see you back on the show. Steve, you're still here. Coming up, the ETFs to watch today, the top ones you need to know about. Plus, we're now short seller Jim Chanos revealing a new bet against Coinbase. He did it on Friday in OT. We're going to debate that new short With Bryn Talkington, who's long,
0: next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy. When you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
9: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
10: And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The ESG market is in its infancy, but it's growing fast. And this controversy over exactly what constitutes environmental, social, and government's ESG principles. Joining us now, right here, Doug Peterson. He's the president and CEO of S&P Global. It's one of the world's largest providers of indexes, including the Dow Jones Index, including ESG indexes. Doug, you have just released a statement on what you think the essential principles of ESG should be. Everyone's worried about the environment, but no one can agree on what these terms are, ESG, actually mean. What are you proposing in this statement?
11: What we're proposing is ESG needs to become more standardized. As an example, ES and G are factors which not a lot of people have defined very specifically. If you think about going to a, a, a restaurant, do you know what organic means? We don't now, but many years ago people talked about what would be healthy food. Organic was never defined, now it is. In ES and G, it's time to be more transparent, to have more standardization.
10: Well, it's one of the big indexes in the world. You've got the powers to push some standardization through. I want to ask you about it. News of the moment here: SEC Chair Gary Gensler has released his long-awaited proposed rules on climate change. They just voted three to one in favor of the proposed rules. It would make disclosures mandatory on climate change, and he hopes it would make them more uniform. So, is this a step in the right direction? Is this what you want to see more? For example, what is S&P? global's position on this?
11: We welcome that this debate has started to be open with the business community. There's groups around the world. There's been an alphabet soup for many years of people trying to come up with standardization. There's one in particular, the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is trying to have a convergence of all of this. So we welcome this debate, this dialogue. We hope that it leads to standardization so that we avoid some sort of a fragmentation in the markets on this kind of data.
10: Okay, thank you very much, Doug. Now, we're going to have much more on ESG and where the rules are going in 2022. It's coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Doug will be joined by Todd Rosenbluth. He's the head of research at ETF Trends, ETFEdge.cnbc.com, and at 2:15. Eastern Time. SEC Chair Gary Gensler will join us to talk about his new climate change proposed rules. The SEC wants to know a lot more about what corporations are doing about climate change and everything else that's coming up on Power Lunch. Halftime, back right after this.
7: We think that as competition
6: increases in crypto, and this is not a call on on crypto or bitcoin prices or anything like that
4: uh, but we think as as competition increases amongst the exchanges you're going to see fee compression and uh, as it is uh, uh coinbase will probably not be profitable this year with a, a, a 40 billion dollar market cap
1: that was famed short seller jim chanos with me on overtime on friday revealing his new short which as you uh, you heard him say is coinbase our Brynn Talkington owns it, and she joins us now. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming on. So what's your reaction to, yeah, to this so. short, the short thesis that he has? I mean, it is a stock that's come down an awful lot, and it's at 109.5 times forward
4: earnings.
9: I think his thesis that he shared with you on Friday that, you know, over time margins will come down because fees compression from trading will come down. I don't think that's a secret and i think you would need more to short the stock and so the way i look at coinbase is i think that those those that shorted tesla five years ago that just thought that tesla should be compared to a gm or ford really missed the broad you know market reception to tesla i think coinbase is similar because it's not just going to be a trading and custodial platform if so i think that you could make the case that jim is saying So I I disagree with that. The only thing that is going on with the with the company is trading.
1: But I mean, Tesla really was the only game in town for the most part uh, for an awfully long while, um, led, of course, by Elon Musk, which counts for a good portion of, I think, the valuation. I think you could you could certainly make that case. Isn't Coinbase a little bit different than that?
9: Well, I think so, of course it is. And I was just making the analogy that if you shorted Tesla back then, that wasn't a great trade, and I don't think this will be a great trade either. But let's talk about why. So Brian Armstrong is an incredible visionary. And I think that when you look at he he used Charles Schwab as the example, which I thought was was interesting. Buying Coinbase today is like buying Schwab. 30 years ago when Charles Schwab just really disrupted the business. And if you look what Charles Schwab, the company, and the man had done over the last 30 years, this is another bite at that apple to get a visionary CEO that is creating a platform that once again is a global platform. So, so Scott, Coinbase already has 89 million verified users. Last quarter, I think they had about 11.4 million per month. And here's what they're doing outside of exchanges that I think people are missing. First of all, what they're doing in the NFT marketplace, and they are going to be rolling out their own NFT marketplace. They're already an investor in OpenSea, which was recently valued, I think, around $13 billion. And what you have to understand with NFTs, that's really where the consumer and the investor are coming together. In addition, and this is so interesting, I, mean, I used to live in Mexico, and they just recently announced you can send money to a user in Mexico, you can go to any of 37,000 convenience stores, and that end user in Mexico can convert that into a fiat currency. So, I mean, that's taking on Western Union. There's so many different verticals that are happening that I think shorting that today is just short-sighted when you're only looking at the trading aspect.
1: I can't even imagine what Chanos thinks about the NFT market in and of itself. Uh, Bryn, thank you. I appreciate it. Maybe he's not. (laughs) One person's long, one person short. And that, my friends, is what makes a market. Brent, thank you. The investment committee is making more moves. I mentioned that, Shannon, you bought Masco. That's a fresh buy. Then I'm going to talk about something you added to, but why Masco is a fresh new buy for you.
2: Yeah, a lot of people may not be familiar with this stock, but think Bear Paint and Delta Faucets. Uh, we believe that the repair market is going to continue uh, not nearly as sensitive to interest rates as you see the home builders being. And so we, we love the housing adjacent trade. And this is a great additional way to play it.
1: Bought more Trex.
2: Yeah, so, you know, we've owned this stock for some time. It's down about 40%. You're always asking us, Scott, when do these stocks in our portfolio get attractive? This one is attractive. It's about 45% of the composite decking. And again, still that housing adjacency, we, we expect repair uh, to continue.
1: All right. Thank you, Dr. J. Unusual Activity. What do you see?
3: Let's hit it fast and furious, as they say. Scott, take a look at AMD, weekly calls being bought at the 120 strike with the stock at about 116 and a half they bought 17,000 of those that's AMD second one Scott camco CCJ uranium play. This is absolutely blowing up to the upside. It was below uh, 20 in February. Now it's pushing to 30. I think it keeps going. They're buying 25,000 April uh, 35 calls. Lastly, Nike into earnings. Scott, they were buying 135s last week. They're buying uh, 135s and 140s now. I'm buying upside calls in Nike, NKE.
1: Kramer says hard to bet against Nike, but you do have some major headwinds China, supply chain, et cetera. By the way, we will have those earnings the moment they break on overtime a little bit later on, just 4 o'clock or so. Final trades right here next. 4 o'clock Eastern, big hour today. Nike earnings. As I mentioned, we also have Corvex management's Keith Meister on with us today. There he is. Skybridge Capital's Anthony Scaramucci. There he is. And tomorrow, there he is. Carl Icahn, the legendary investor, will be with us in overtime as well. Been a while. We're looking forward to that, too. Four o'clock Eastern. I will see you then. Shannon, final trade. What do you have?
2: The third leg of my home improvement stool, uh, Home Depot, great big box retail, and tied to a very good theme that we think will continue.
1: Okay, Doctor J.
3: Uh, Shell, S H E L, Scott, back into this one only on the calls, not the stock. Fifty-five strike in April. All
1: right, little short-term action there, Steve Weiss.
5: FedEx, it's been bouncing off the lows after the earnings. I think it keeps going. I added on the flush after
1: they reported. Okay. And Joe Terranova.
4: United Health Group trades to an all-time high earlier today. I'm long. I'm staying long. Stock is reasonably valued. It should go to 550 minimum.
1: Biggest story today, Joe, no doubt the move in yields. Is that, is that what we're thinking? Two years higher, uh, 207. Yep. The 10 years at 227, those are highs of the day. Uh, The Dow's at the lows of the day, down 300 points on the back of Powell.
4: Without question, yields are the story. Yields are going to be the story until you get about 100 basis points higher, and we see whether there's going to be negative impact on the consumer and corporate behavior.
1: Yeah, well, we're going to see. Uh, There is your real-time look at what stocks are doing right now. I'll see you in overtime in just a little bit. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
2: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.